Welcome back to the House Call Doctor's Quick and Dirty Tips for Taking Charge of Your Health. I'm Dr. Rob, and this is part two of my series on influenza. My previous podcast covered the basics about the infection. In this episode, I'll focus on the H1N1, or swine flu, version of the virus. And I think life would not be complete without my disclaimer. So here it is. This podcast is for informational purposes only. My goal is to add to your medical knowledge and translate some of that weird medical stuff you hear so that when you do go to your doctor, your visits will be more fruitful. I don't intend to replace your doctor. He or she is the one you should always consult about your own medical conditions. So let's get back to the swine flu, or swan flu, as I say here in the Deep South. There's lots of confusion or misinformation regarding the virus. Let me clear up some of these myths. First, you don't get this type of flu from eating pork or swans, for that matter. And second, your pet pig Fluffy is in no grave danger. And please don't bring your pig to your doctor's office. We don't treat pigs. To avoid this confusion, I'll call it H1N1, and we'll explain later why it's sometimes called swine flu. So what's the deal? Some folks are talking about H1N1 like it's the Black Death, while others think the dire predictions are a bunch of hooey. One of the main take-home messages of my last podcast was that the regular yearly flu is dangerous, killing 30,000 people every year in the U.S. Most recent estimates I've read have speculated the H1N1 in its current form could kill between 30 and 90,000 Americans. Let me put these numbers into perspective. Prostate cancer kills 27,000 men each year, and breast cancer kills 41,000 women. So what makes this virus so bad? In my last podcast, I talked about two forms of influenza, A and B. H1N1 is in the influenza A family, which is the worst of the normal flu strains. A is worse because it can change more and fool the immune system better than B. The A virus also can infect animals, which is actually a very important fact. While in animals, the virus can change outside of the watchful eye of the human immune system. When the animal-infecting variety then combines back with a human strain, which viruses can do, it can form a virus that is very different from the usual A strains. Many of these new strains from animals can infect a person but still can't be transmitted from one person to another. But occasionally, an animal-associated virus not only infects people, but is also transmissible from one person to another. When this happens, it can cause a pandemic. The current H1N1 strain came initially from pigs, so that's why it's called swine flu. So what's the difference between an epidemic and a pandemic? Let me roleplay. I'll pretend I'm grammar girl for a bit. The word epidemic comes from the Greek epi, which means upon, and demos, which means the people. So an epidemic is something that happens upon the people. The Greek prefix pan, on the other hand, means all. So a pandemic is something that happens to all the people. Okay, now back to Dr. Rob. The reason pandemics are so bad is because the virus undergoes radical shift in the antigens, which are proteins that coat the outside of the virus, and so the virus is very unfamiliar to the human immune system. Epidemic strains are similar enough to previous strains that our bodies usually recognize them sooner and prevent more serious illness. The two main antigens on the surface of influenza A are called hemagglutinin and neuraminidase. But since it's impossible to say these words without spitting and so spreading the virus to other people, these are shortened to H and N. Both of these antigens are type 1, so the current outbreak is called the H1N1 virus. 
With such a big shift in the antigens, the virus not only causes more severe disease, it also infects a much bigger percentage of the population. So an already deadly virus is made more dangerous and infects more people. I've recently read estimates that half of the U.S. population will be infected with the H1N1 virus, with one-third of those having symptoms. That's a lot of people infected with a potentially deadly virus. This has scientists nervous. The 1918 H1N1 virus killed between 20 and 100 million people. The good news is that this is not 1918. So far, the virus hasn't been all that bad, although there still is a chance it can mutate and get much worse. We also have much better ways to fight this possible threat through the use of communication tools like podcasts, drug treatments, and prevention via immunization. Immunization basically shows your immune system what the virus looks like without causing you to get sick. Then when the body is exposed to the real virus, the antibodies and white blood cells can subdue the virus and keep it from causing trouble. The vaccine against H1N1 should be available around October of this year in the U.S. and will be given separate from the normal influenza vaccine. As opposed to the yearly flu epidemic, the H1N1 tends to hit younger people more and more severely than it does the elderly. So the following people should be the first to get the H1N1 vaccine. People between 6 months and 25 years of age, young children will actually have to get it in two separate shots about a month apart. People between 25 and 64 who are at risk for complications, listen to my previous podcast for details, pregnant women, healthcare workers, and people caring for infants under 6 months of age. Once these groups have been immunized, the rest of the public should be vaccinated. People 65 and older are actually at lower risk because they've lived long enough to already have antibodies against the H1N1 in their system. Additionally, high-risk people who aren't immunized and come into immediate contact with the virus can be treated with preventive antiviral medication. Additionally, high-risk people who aren't immunized and come into immediate contact with the virus can be treated with preventive antiviral medication. This doesn't, however, replace the flu shot. So, what should you be doing about the H1N1 threat? My first advice is that contained in the front of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Don't panic. Most people infected with a virus don't end up on death's door. Yes, the possible threat is big and the consequences bad, but the best way to save the most lives is for us to keep cool and work together. The second thing I would recommend is to stay informed. Don't get all your information from the TV morning shows and evening news, as they sometimes can get medical facts wrong. Instead, go to the CDC website. Specifically, go to cdc.gov forward slash H1N1 flu. Let me repeat that. cdc.gov forward slash H1N1 FLU for accurate and up-to-date information. Other reputable websites like WebMD and MedPage Today are also good places to find information. Make sure others stay informed as well. Share this podcast and any other information sources with your friends and family. An educated and informed public is by far the best defense we have against this potential threat. Here are my tips to keep you and your family healthy. Tip number one, get vaccinated if it's appropriate. People who are not at risk should let others who are have first dibs on the vaccine. Tip number two, During significant outbreaks, isolate from others as directed by the authorities. This doesn't mean you need to stay inside all winter long, but they may close schools and places of business if the virus gets really bad. Listen for directions from the proper authorities. Tip number three, observe good hygiene. Washing your hands with soap and water or using hand sanitizer reduces the spread of the virus. 
covering your cough with your arm will also keep the virus from getting into the air and infecting other people. It'll also keep your hands clean. But if you do that, don't go around touching people with the inside of your elbows. Tip number four. If you or a loved one starts having flu symptoms, specifically high fever, body aches, headache, and cough, seek medical attention immediately. Many of the treatments are only effective if given in the first few days. Tip number five. Follow the rules. If you're not a high-risk group, don't demand the vaccine or antiviral treatment. We need to work together and someone who is at lower risk getting the vaccine or antiviral medication may put someone else's life in serious danger. Tip number six, look out for scams. Like any tragedy, unscrupulous people will try and capitalize on the fear. Get your information and advice only from trustworthy sources. Yes, this sounds scary. Think of it as a large hurricane forming in the Gulf. You prepare for the worst case and hope for the best. The best-case scenario is that all our preparation will be unnecessary, and the H1N1 ends up being a dud virus. The CDC is kind of in a no-win situation, because a low death rate, which is what they want, will draw them criticism, while a high death rate, which is what they're trying to prevent, will justify their concern. I think they're doing their best in this difficult situation. Don't panic, prepare for the worst, keep informed, get educated, and work together. This podcast should only be the start of that process. Remember to take advantage of the wonderful CDC website, cdc.gov forward slash H1N1 flu. One more time, cdc.gov forward slash H1N1 FLU. That's it for today's podcast. I hope you don't end up needing much of its advice. And if you have topics you want me to cover in future podcasts, email me at housecalldoctor at quickanddirtytips.com, Twitter me at housecalldoc, or call area code 206-337-5895. You can find me on Facebook and at my blog, Musings of a Distractible Mind at distractible.org. Catch you next time. Stay healthy. Mm-hmm.